Please be seated. Well, we are continuing on with our walk through the book of Genesis, or rather the life of Abraham. Um, we're up to chapter 14, although we didn't start at the beginning, so, you know, part way through. Um, and today we have a very special guest who is going to read our Bible reading for us. It's David Suchet. Bet you didn't expect that, did you? Come to a little church in Cottenham and David Suchet offers to read the Bible. He's not here in person. (laughs) Couldn't quite make it, but he has recorded it specially for us. So um, the reason he's doing that is because there's lots of really, really, really difficult words in this passage. And rather than put someone through that, although Rob, if I'd have known you were going to be here, we're giving you the challenge... Um, We thought we would listen to David read it so eloquently. So settle back and listen to Genesis chapter 14. Genesis chapter 14. At the time when Amraphel was king of Shinah, Ari, king of Elisa, king of Lyman, king of Elam, and Tyler, king of Bohem, these kings went to war against Bila, king of Solomon, Bersha, king of Gomorrah, Shinah, king of Alma, Sheniba, king of Zeboyim, and the king of Bela, that is Zohar. All these latter kings joined forces in the valley of Sidon, that is the Dead Sea Valley. For twelve years they had been subject to Kedolaim, but in the thirteenth year they rebelled. In the fourteenth year, Kedolaim and the king's allies with him went out and defeated the Rephaites in Ashtoreth, Canaan, the Zuzites in Ham, the Emites in Sheba, Kiriathel, and the Horites in the hill country of Seir, as far as El Paran, near the desert. Then they turned back and went to Enishka, that is Kadesh, and they conquered the whole territory of the Amalekites, as well as the Amorites who were living in Hazazan Tamar. Then the king of Sodom the king of Gomorrah, the king of Adma, the king of Zeboim, and the king of Bina, that is Zohar, marched out and drew up their battle lines in the valley of Sidon against Kedolaim, king of Elam, Tyre, king of Gomorrah, Amraphel, king of Shinar, and Ariok, king of Elasa, four kings against five. Now the valley of Sidon was full of targets. And when the kings of Sodom and Gomorrah fled, some of the men fell into them, and the rest fled to the hills. The four kings seized all the goods of Sodom and Gomorrah and all their food. Then they went away. They also carried off Abraham's nephew, Lot, and his possessions, since he was living in Sodom. A man who had escaped came and reported this to Abraham the Hebrew. Now Abraham was living near the great trees of Mamre the Amorite, a brother of Eshcol and Ami, all of whom were allied with Abraham. When Abraham heard that his relative had been taken captive, he called out 318 trained men born in his household and went in pursuit as far as Dan. During the night, Abraham divided his men to attack them and he routed them, pursuing them as far as Koba, north of Damascus. He recovered all the goods and brought back his relative Lot and his possessions, together with the women and the other people. 
After Abraham returned from defeating Kedulaya and the king's ally with him, the king of Sodom came out to meet him in the valley of Shara, that is the king's valley. Then Melchizedek, king of Salem, brought out bread and wine. He was priest of God most high, and he blessed Abraham, saying, Blessed be Abraham by God most high, creator of heaven and earth, and praise be to God most high, who delivered your enemies into your hand. Then Abraham gave him a tenth of everything. The king of Sodom said to Abraham, Give me the people and keep the goods for yourself. But Abraham said to the king of Sodom, With raised hand I have sworn an oath to the Lord, God most high, creator of heaven and earth, that I will accept nothing belonging to you, not even a thread or the strap of a sandal, so that you will never be able to say, I made Abraham rich. I will accept nothing but what my men have eaten of the share that belongs to the men who went with me, to I, Eshcol, and Mahmoud. Let them have their share. Thank you, David. I wonder whether he gets extra bonus on a difficult passage. I love my sleep. Many people know that. And... um, when we lived in London, I would just fall asleep and be asleep for the whole night and then wake up in the morning. It's amazing. It hasn't happened for a while, but that's what I used to do. But when we lived in London, we had a few people come and live with us every now and again. Friends, family would come and live with us. And one time we had my friend Abby, who came to stay with us for a few weeks. Now, Abby is really, really lovely, but what you need to know about Abby is that Everywhere she goes, things happen. So Abby was with us. She'd only been with us a few nights, and there I was asleep, as I did all night, and suddenly there was this little tapping at our bedroom door, followed by, Simon, Kate, are you awake? I don't know how long she was there, because it took me a while to wake up, but eventually I heard this. I thought, Abby, you all right? Abby, what's the matter? She went, I heard a noise from the next door flat. I mean, what, what do you mean? What's the time? It's three o'clock in the morning. I heard a noise. There was smashing of glass. And we were like, oh. I said, okay. So I went into her room, which was the wall to the next door flat. Nothing. She went, I heard it smashing. There was raised voices. I'm really worried about the people in there. I said, okay, well, what, what, should, what do you want to do? She went, I think we should call the police. Now, what you need to know about Abby is she, she calls the police quite a lot. So we called the police... Three o'clock in the morning, and so we think there's a disturbance in the flat next door, and you know we we're not sure. And we gave the details, and and uh, then they said, "What we want you to do is switch on your front light and stand in the window so that the police know which is yours when they arrive." So we switched on the front light, and we're standing in the window, and about fifteen minutes later, these police came with helmets, guns behind our hedge and they stood up and they were like and we're going 
And they went to the house, and there was knocking on door, there was commotion. At that point, we shut the curtains, because we're like, don't want anyone to know it was us. <laughs> Called the police. And then we saw them take someone out, and then that was it. Went to bed, went to sleep, got up the next morning. Nothing. Everything was quiet and fine. We'd inadvertently been caught up in some kind of raid by calling the police in the early hours, which was a bit embarrassing when two days later we saw our neighbour come out the door and everything was fine. We're like, hi, all right? It's like, yeah. I'm like, we're never going to be friends with them again, are we? You know, but it's the kind of thing that can easily happen. Maybe not a police raid, calling the police, but, you know, getting involved in something that you didn't intend to get involved in. One minute you're living your life, minding your own business, then you invite your friend Abby to come and stay with you, and all of a sudden, you're in the middle of something you never intended to be in. And you know, it doesn't have to be dramatic, does it, like a police raid at three o'clock in the morning, but it could just be something simple. I was at the swimming pool the other day, and I was talking to this lady who had a real issue, it was swimming lessons for the children, who had a real issue with how the swimming lessons were going. My child hasn't been in the pool for three minutes. She's sitting on the side. I went, yeah, it is, it, it is, it's not good, is it? I was just sort of agreeing because I felt a bit like I needed to. And um, so she went on at me for a bit. And then suddenly she called in the manager. And she said, I think it's disgraceful the way these lessons go. And this woman agrees with me. And I was like, um, and I'd been drawn into something else that I really didn't want to be in. I'd embroiled in an argument about swimming when I was absolutely fine. Because, you know, we all know that if we live life, if we enter into relationships with people, there are times when we get involved in things that we really didn't mean to get involved in. Situations that seem to not be our problem, but somehow we're in the middle of them. Because life has a way of throwing us into difficult things at the most unexpected moments. And so I guess it's no surprise that here in the book of Genesis... In this rather complicated and slightly strange chapter that's seemingly sort of dumped in the middle of Abraham's story, that we find the father of many nations in just this kind of situation, being drawn into something that wasn't his intention. For those of you who are unaware of the backstory, who haven't maybe been here when we've been discussing that, Abraham and his nephew Lot in previous chapters having come from Egypt with much wealth, had struggled to find land in Canaan that would support them both. They were numerous, and the bit of land that they were on at the time was hilly and dry, not a place for a large family to settle and thrive. So they decided they were going to part company. Abraham allowed Lot to have a look around and have the first choice of the good land for himself. And Lot, having taken a good look around, decided to choose the lush valley near the River Jordan, that which had plenty of room for growth and food and trade, that which was near the city of Sodom on the Jordan Plain. And so Abraham and Lot went their separate ways, Lot living happily near the cities and Abraham enjoying the high ridge that ran across the spine of Canaan. And by all accounts, things were going well. Both for Lot and for Abraham, there was no animosity, there was no issues between them, there were no problems, they were both simply living their lives, but in different places. But then, an international incident occurred. 
One that it seems had been brewing for some time, but for the readers of this passage, and maybe for Abraham and Lot as well, one that came completely out of the blue. It seemed to involve powers from afar. Four kings, to be exact, who had come from some eastern region. Four exotic leaders, if you like. Powerful and domineering. Who up until now, it seems, had been in control of the land of Canaan. They'd been overseeing the kings of the area, if you like. Their wealth, their way of life, and gaining what they could from them. Ruling, if you like, uh, as if they were faraway empires who enjoyed the privilege and power of owning another area. They'd been in charge for 12 years, putting the little Canaan kings in their place, reaping the rewards from their hard work. But now, at this point in time, it seems that the five kings of Canaan, including Barak, king of Sodom, and Beersha, king of Gomorrah, had had enough. Enough of being part of the empire of these eastern powers. Enough of being ruled from afar and having no real power of their own. And so they've decided they're going to rebel. I suppose if we were transposed this to modern day, they might have held a referendum or something and tried desperately to broker a Brexit, which no one was going to agree with. However, in Abraham's day, they went to war. And it seems it was quite a big war. If you take a look at the map, which will come up in a moment, you'll see that firstly, the four kings... The map's coming. Oh, there you go. Firstly, the four kings came from up the top and started going down, attacking on the way lots of difficult names to pronounce, which I'm not going to say fighting battle after battle after battle as they came down the right-hand side on their way to the Jordan Plain. And winning, because they were mighty kings, powerful and influential with huge armies. And then they get to the Jordan Plain where they meet the king of Sodom, the king of Gomorrah, the king of Admah, the king of Zeboiim and the king of Bela, the five kings of Canaan. And quite easily and fairly quickly, without a whole lot of difficulty, the four kings from the east defeat them. And they quash the uprising. After all, the little Canaan kings were no match for the four mighty empires. And so they loot the land around the Jordan Plain. They take what they can and they leave. Unfortunately for Abram... They leave with his nephew Lot, carrying him off with all his possessions back to the lands that they had come from as they travel now up the left-hand side and back to where they'd been. Which means that Abraham, although far from this international incident, these wars and battles that had nothing to do with him, he finds he is drawn into this situation. A situation he never intended to be in and he didn't really want to have to deal with. But one from which now he has a choice. Culturally, he's sort of bound to rescue Lot because Lot's his nephew and his family and in many ways he is his responsibility. But he doesn't have to. Lot, after all, has chosen to part with Abraham and go and live somewhere completely different. 
next to the people of Sodom, who, as Genesis 13 says, were wicked and were sinning greatly against the Lord. Abram doesn't have to step in. Lot has made his choice. But he finds he's drawn to help. And so he engages with this incident and orchestrates the most amazing rescue mission with just 300 or so trained men, an alliance, if you like, of family and friends. And with them, he follows the kings of the east, the Green Arrow, the great kings who have up till now defeated everyone in their path, and he beats them. He doesn't just beat them. The Bible says he routed them. He caused them to flee, leaving all that they had gained from the previous battles behind so that Abraham can rescue Lot and take all the plunder, bringing about in the context of all that has gone before on this map, and even without that context, a most unlikely victory, which could probably never, ever, ever have happened. But it did. It reminds me a little bit of a trip that we made to Legoland. I know it's random, isn't it? But it does where we uh, decided to go on one of the games of, uh, called the Ninjago game. Has anyone been to Legoland? Have they been to the Ninjago world? Okay, great. It's Ninjago is a Lego franchise. No, Lego... Yeah? Yeah. With lots of characters and things, and, you know, you have to buy all of the different characters because that's the way it works, isn't it? And in Legoland, there's a Ninjago world where there's some rides that you can go on themed around Ninjago. Ninjago is all about ninjas, by the way, who fight and battle. And so we decided, Simon and I and the boys, to go on this Ninjago ride. It was like a computerised ride, so you got into a little um, thing that moved around, but there was a screen in front of you, and basically you had to defeat anything that attacked you on the screen. It was quite horrifying, and I was really quite scared, although I pretended to be brave. And so we all sat in here, and Joshua was sitting there, and he went, I don't know what to do. Mummy, what do I do? And I went, hold on, it's a little bit complicated, darling. Let me just work it out. Basically, what you had to do, there was like a, a little panel, and you had to just run your hand over it, and it would shoot out things, so it was sort of like a laser, but you just had to run your hand over. That was it. I said, all you do, darling, is this. It's quite simple. I thought, there's no way he's going to get it, but he'll enjoy it. So we're all there, and things are attacking us on the screen, and we're all going, oh, gosh, quick, battling them. Well, that's what I was doing. And Simon was like, I've got it, I've got it, I can do it, I can do it. And James was like, this is easy. And Josh was just going, the whole time. When we came out at the end of this game, I had 300 points. Yes, thank you. Simon had 1,500. I know. James had 6,000. Yeah. And Joshua had 8,000 points. And we were like, how on earth did that happen? He was just sitting there going. And I was putting my all into this. He didn't even understand what he was supposed to do. And yet he won. How on earth did that happen? How on earth did the smallest person among us who had no idea what he was doing win that game? And I guess when people first read the story of Abraham and his defeat of the Eastern Powers, their reaction would have been very similar to that. How on earth did that happen? How on earth did the small group end up victorious 
in this battle. And maybe we would never know the answer, except that on his way back from defeating the kings of the east and rescuing Lot, Abram had a rather strange encounter with a very mysterious figure, the figure of Melchizedek, the king of Salem, who is also a priest. He appears here in the book of Genesis and is mentioned only twice more in the Bible, and his role is to approach Abram with bread and wine and a blessing. We don't really know anything about him. We know he's later linked to Jesus in the New Testament, and we know he is very mysterious, and we know there's much conjecture about what this encounter might mean. But we really don't know anything concrete, whatever anyone says, except that at this moment in time, Melchizedek is simply a king, a priest who arrives to celebrate Abraham's victory. He brings with him wine and bread, not for communion, but for celebration and sustenance, for a hard-fought battle. And he announces a blessing on Abraham, and he praises God. Probably, in his mind, he was praising the Canaanite god of the time or the very least a God he didn't really know anything about. But the reason he does this, and maybe the reason this chapter is here in the Bible at all, is because Melchizedek recognises what the king of Sodom later misses, that Abraham, although allied to other people and of some influence, could never have won the battle against the eastern kings on his own. He could only have won it by the power of God, or as he puts it, the power of the creator of heaven and earth. Or if you like, Melchizedek recognises God's hand in this very unlikely victory. And in his encounter with Abraham, he asserts that the God who created everything he sees around him, whichever God he happens to think that is, is not a distant deity, but an ever-present help. And it is his power and his influence that assisted Abraham in these everyday struggles he was drawn into. In the next couple of verses, of course, when Abraham meets the king of Sodom, he makes clear who this God is. And he puts his full trust in him once more as he hands over all the wealth he has gained back to King Berah and proclaims God to be the Lord. Or we could translate that as Yahweh. The Lord, God Most High, one God above all the Canaanite gods of the time. And you know, in many ways, this strange encounter, this meeting with Melchizedek that comes out of the blue is vital. There's no doubt it's really weird, it's very strange, it's a little bit out of place, but without it, the focus of the passage would be very different, because without it, in all likelihood, Abraham would have been lifted high as the one who defeated the great powers of the day. He would have been pushed into a situation where he faced the pressure of keeping the peace and sought to build alliances with those around, because everyone would have thought that he was the one who could protect them. Because without this short passage where God is praised, where Abraham is blessed, and where we're all reminded that God's power is here in our everyday lives, what's to stop Abraham, the defeater of empires, from thinking that he can solve all his problems on his own from now on? 
What's to stop Abraham, the defeater of the eastern kings, from worrying that the next unexpected, unwanted battle will actually defeat him? What's to stop Abraham, this man who's done something no one ever thought he could do, looking around for anything, anyone to help him through a life that continually draws him into situations that he doesn't plan for and quite often doesn't want to be in? And without this sort of passage, this little short passage about Melchizedek, what's to stop us from thinking these things too? After all, we may not battle the Eastern kings on an everyday basis, but we do face our own battles, our own problems. We do enter into our own struggles that can feel overwhelmingly large at times. Often ones we didn't ask for and ones we don't really want to have to face, but ones that are much stronger and much more powerful than we feel we can handle on our own. Some of us fight these battles on behalf of others. Some of us do because life has just happened to us. But like Abraham, at some point, we make the decision to engage with what is happening. And we enter into the fight where danger lies. And when we do that, if we are lucky and things go well as they did for Abraham, what's to stop us thinking that we can then solve all of the problems we have by ourselves? Or if we're not so fortunate and we feel overwhelmed by our battles, what's to stop us worrying and stressing about the next unexpected problem that may overcome us? And if we struggle daily to keep our heads above the battles we face, what's to stop us searching around for things that might help to relieve this pressure, even for a short time? Unless, unless this short passage, this encounter with Melchizedek becomes a vital part of our understanding of how we live our lives with God, reminding us that the battles we face each day are not our battles to win on our own, because they're ones in which God is present. Not as a watching God, not as a distant deity, but as an active presence. Almighty God, who created the heavens and the earth, and whose power and influence assists us in our everyday struggles. The Lord, one God above all things. Let's pray together. So as we go from here, may we know the power of Christ in our lives, in the everyday things that we face, and in the things that we're unexpected that come upon us. And may we know the victory belongs to him. And may God walk with us and surround us and bless us. Amen. Please be seated.